Hey, I'm Mel. And I'm Andres, and you're listening to Mixtape, your favorite Afro-Latin podcast. What she said. In Puerto Rico, back in 2019, the people marched and protested for like 15, 16 days in the summer and ousted our governor, first governor that the people have ousted in Puerto Rico through protests, which was historic. I don't want to say that reggaeton was the thing that ousted the governor, but I think it certainly helped in many ways. <laughs> Today's single presents the extended version of our interview with Dr. Beth Colon-Piscini. Beth is an assistant professor of instruction at the University of Texas at Austin in the African and African Diaspora Studies Department. Her expertise is on Puerto Rico's music and street art, Puerto Rican, Caribbean, and Afro-diasporic feminism, pan-Caribbean and Afro-diasporic cultural and political exchanges, and decolonial practices. This interview with Beth is part of the investigative work for track eight of our second season, Cuando Baila Reggaeton, While Dancing Reggaeton. Check it out. It's good stuff. Today's single title is inspired by the song Quítate Tú Pa' Ponerme Yo of the game-changing album Doce Discípulos. We chose this song because it represents a pivotal moment in the history of reggaeton bringing together many heavyweights of the genre. This song is part of Beth Reggaeton playlist, Formative Perreo. Check it out on Spotify, it's really good. Finally, we really like this title because, as Mel says, it describes part of what our mission is in the podcast. Quítate tú pa' ponerme yo means move aside so that I can take place. It captures our intention to remove the narrative that centers whiteness in the music and culture that sprouted from black roots and contributions. Quítate tú pa' ponerme yo, we say. We was there to begin with anyways. My name is Dr. Beth Colon Piscini. I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. I am currently an assistant professor of instruction at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm also a cultural writer and critic, a burgeoning one, so to speak, uh, really interested in making um, connections between uh, culture and society that are much more in terms of like public knowledge that it doesn't stay in the academy. That's very important to me. Um, I got my MA PhD from UT Austin, uh, the department that I'm currently teaching in the African and African Diaspora Studies Department. Uh, I got my BA in political science and Latino studies from Northwestern University up in Evanston, Illinois. Um, and so my sort of academic journey has always been about culture, the politics of culture, the relationship between capital P politics and culture. Uh, and so that's what, what I try to bring into my scholarship and my writing and just my general interests. Um, my journey into reggaeton was just growing up with it. I was born in 1992, full disclosure. Uh, and so I was there when it was sort of becoming not only something that was known within a larger Puerto Rican context, but also 
globalizing and having this first global boom in the mid 2000s that um, you know took the genre to something that nobody really expected not even the people that were creating it or rapping and really entrenched within making that music or even consuming that music um so in terms of of that and and my knowledge and my interest in it it's really because it was all around me as i was growing up and you know, I grew up dancing to it uh, from middle school into high school and college. It's something that I, I still, um, you know, think of as something very important, but also um, culturally impactful and resistive and just incredible. And so I try to make it part of not only my own personal, uh, you know, journey through life, but also talk about it more and give the respect that it's due within um, culture writing and scholarly writing, um, because reggaeton is culture. It was my part of my culture. So, yeah. Chumbo. For those of us unfamiliar with the development of reggaeton, tell us where it began. Firstly, what's very important to understand is that reggaeton in its development and at its core is, you know, despite its waves of globalization that have brought upon a whitening of the genre, uh, which we can talk about a little bit later, it's an Afro-diasporic rhythm and a pan-Caribbean rhythm. And there's a lot of overlap between these two terms, of course. So throughout its almost 40 year existence by now uh, and its evolution, you could hear elements that are shared with US hip hop, salsa, merengue, Jamaican dance hall and reggae, uh, Colombian cumbia, Trinidadian soca, Haitian compa, calypso, bomba, all of these uh, Afro diasporic genres uh, have come together within reggaeton in varying degrees throughout its history. And it's something that, you know, Wayne Marshall refers to it as the ultimate sonic amalgamation of Western Blackness. Um, and so it's also important to then recognize that this amalgamation is happening or had been happening and even to this day happening in within simultaneity and throughout time and space so i'll start with time and and space and place and all of that um, and of course you can't have reggaeton as we know it without jamaican dance hall and reggae and it could not have become a Spanish language companion to those genres if it wasn't for Jamaican nation to Panama to labor, not only in the construction of the canal uh, it, that the US was building to compete with these larger European colonial powers at that time, but also their descendants and the more contemporary waves of Jamaican migration to Panama to work the free trade zones and ports along the canal. So Jamaica and Panama are particularly important stops along the sonic train of this genre. So, you know, I like to sometimes think, could a Puerto Rican or even a Dominican 
have encountered this music in these uh, places or in the highly diasporic United States and, you know, made something of, of this music and, and make it uh, something in Spanish, very Caribbean, very theirs, maybe, but that's not necessarily how it happened. You know, it, it could not have been uh, a genre that we know without this stop from Jamaica to Panama. And then from Panama, you have migrants, you know, from the 80s and 90s, like El General, for example, who land in New York and try to make something of this music, try to find a larger opportunity with this music that they are, you know, very proud of and that they are uh, really experts in. And so that's where you find the connection much more directly with other Caribbean folk in the, in city spaces like in New York. Uh, you know, you have Puerto Ricans and Dominicans and even Cubans coming together with Jamaicans and Panamanians and other people of Afro African descent to, you know, not only be part of a youth culture that is burgeoning at that point, which includes hip hop, of course, because they were also in, involved in the creation of hip hop, but also something in their mother tongue, so to speak, and, and a more, uh, you know, Caribbeanized version uh, of reggae uh, that is already Caribbean, but it's giving a different twist to it. And so from there, because, you know, Puerto Ricans and Dominicans of the 80s and 90s are going through this incredible change of massive globalization, the internet is, you know, now going to become this incredibly important tool that connects the whole world, that, that along with travel and migration, Puerto Ricans in particular, because we've had uh, U.S. citizenship since 1917, the traveling is made easier. So there's this sort of cycle of uh, vivin, as, as we call it, of like coming and going from New York or Hartford or Orlando or, who, or wherever that is also then matched with a very Puerto Rican experience. So these youths were having you know, one foot in the United States and one foot in Puerto Rico or having connections in some way, you know, their cousins were doing that type of migration and they brought certain music with them or certain practices and traditions. And then, so they were having this involvement within this culture, within both places all at once. That's what I mean by simultaneity, this, you know, travel and this migration throughout the 1900s and into the, two, the 2000s of Caribbean people makes this a very diasporic and admixed genre as we know it. Um, and so that's why, you know, it's, it's a very, um, uh, in terms of the spread and which I think we'll talk about later on, uh, you have not only the, the the ease of travel and the, the sharing of this music with the internet, in particular in the 2000s, 
but even uh, the infrastructure of touring gets better. You know, these artists are becoming more known, their, their music is becoming more entrenched. And as they tour and perform more in other countries, that also spreads the popularity and knowledge of the genre. Um, and so it's to the point that now you can hear reggaeton anywhere and everywhere. Uh, and you have artists that are not from the backgrounds found in, you know, the roots of the genre, you know, Colombia, Argentina, Chile, Mexico, Spain, uh, participating and even becoming stars across the globe. Um, but we can talk about that a little bit later. <laughs> Muchos me miran como si yo fuera un tipo sin arreglo, como si nunca antes hubieran visto un negro, como si fuera un delincuente, como si con el lápiz y con mi libreta yo matara gente. Tell us more about the widening process that reggaeton has undertaken. Yeah, so that sort of becomes once again a very particular process that happens in simultaneity. So there is within the Puerto Rican context when it comes to whitening the genre, um, the entrenchment of the government and the, the sort of um, policing and demonization and basically pathologizing of the people that create this genre within Puerto Rico um, that is then also used in other countries as well, in Cuba, the Dominican Republic, Mexico, all of these places that have found, uh, that reggaeton has sort of found a home or a, a popularity, the, the powers that be, so to speak, find a way to attack because of you know, racist policies or racist understandings of their own nationhood and who their people are. And so that was one of the ways in which um, the the sort of negativity that came or you know the negative reaction that came with reggaeton as you know more white or white passing stars became involved um, it sort of became easier for these people to accept it there was also the fact that this genre as it became more popular needed to find itself within radio play and uh, public performances and TV award shows. And you can't perform songs necessarily if there are sexually explicit lyrics or you know, bad words and all of that kind of stuff. So they, the artists themselves had to self-censure a lot of the times what they were rapping about and singing about and the words that they were choosing to express that. And there's also the fact that in terms of, uh, you know, capitalism, once this genre becomes very popular, uh, American markets, you know, American uh, labels become interested, whether it's a fad or whether it's not, you know, they want a piece of the pie because they see that it's very popular in these markets that they could tap into and, ex you know, extract money from, um, whether it be in Latin America and the Caribbean itself or within Latinx communities in the United States. Um, so there's all of these things happening, you know, across the um, uh, Spanish speaking world that affects the, the whitening of uh, reggaeton or that enables the whitening of reggaeton that then becomes 
uh, almost a best practice in order for producers and artists and managers and labels to find some type of success because, you know, gatekeeping Black people from the genre means that they can sort of control the product a little bit better. They can control the image of the genre a little bit better. And they can, of course, still work within these logics of white supremacy that is very global uh, and extract more money from that because, oh, it's more desirable, it's more palatable, they're not being too offensive. Um, and so you have all of that happening at the same time. And even within you know, the larger Puerto Rican context, uh, these steps are happening at the, at the very same time. Like I said, uh, you, know, you have a, a larger sort of moment in which reggaeton uh, is transforming itself that is being affected by our government, by religious institutions, by elite culture, uh, at the same time that it's, you know, having encounters with other global markets and other global players. You mentioned a number of efforts to censor reggaeton. What was so dangerous about this rhythm? So, you know, you have to keep in mind that in its earliest expressions in the late 1980s and even early 1990s, in Puerto Rico in particular and in other places that um, were doing reggaeton or reggae in español or even rap in español, um, this was a musical tool to communicate the reality experienced by those of the working class, of the underemployed class, the majority of whom are of African descent. And so they were highly persecuted, policed and criminalized within Latin American and Caribbean societies. And within Puerto Rico, the earliest iteration of this music was also just being produced, written and performed by working class youth in their teens and their 20s. So it was also, almost like a generational war as well. Uh, and you know, this transformation of the culture that these older, mostly white uh, elites were seeing. And they were very worried because these youth were talking about, you know, not just sex and young people things, but they were also critiquing the over-policing of their communities. They were critiquing the, um, the stratification of class and the geographies and, and how the geographies matched that stratification, especially in the Puerto Rican context where you have you know, um, wealthier communities also sometimes side by side with public housing projects, for example, as the suburbanization of uh, Puerto Rico was following the, sur the suburbanization of the United States in the 50s and 60s. So there was this hope that by having this close proximity within these two classes that were sometimes very much so racialized differently, that they would, you know, the rich people would be teaching the impoverished people how to, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, work hard, and these uh, mores of middle class and upper class uh, Puerto Ricanness. 
And that project kind of failed very much so to the point that by the time that we get to the 80s and the 90s where this music is really being created and and spread throughout these you know more impoverished and exploited communities uh the rich people start gating themselves off from these other communities so not only do they gate themselves off they also put gates around these communities themselves, especially the public housing projects, because they, there was a racial panic, there was a moral panic about crime, there was a moral panic about you know, even looser sexual mores at the time. And so they don't wanna interact with that. They don't wanna see the, the, the way that the youth of their country are very different from them and that is threatening to them. And so we have this moment in which the government is raiding, uh, you know, back when CDs were sold and there were establishments for that, they're raiding these, you know, music selling establishments. They are raiding music video producers, their uh, archives essentially of all the music videos that they have been recording with these new artists. Uh, they are raiding parties and clubs that are playing this music. There's this uh, incessant need to stop crime at the time. And that means that you then have to over-police youth because through their music, through their blackness, through their lower class uh, status, they are already then pathologized as criminal to these elites. And so we see this rise in um, physical violence and policing from the state at the same time that you have these leaders, both um, you know, secular government leaders, but also religious leaders in Puerto Rico specifically, trying to use very hateful rhetoric to help uh, make sure that Puerto Rican culture and youth are being essentially fixed, you know, that they're not being fully corrupted, that we can turn the course around to um, basically uh, destroy this burgeoning genre and culture. But they failed, obviously. And it ended up being a thing that once they uh, become very vocal about it, it provides, first of all, even more uh, desire of people to listen to this music and to dance to this music and go to their parties, but also to promote the artists themselves. You know, Evie Queen famously in 2006 was like, you know, Senator Velda Gonzalez, who was one of these very vocal anti-reggaeton leaders, she gave us the best promotion because like everybody was looking at us and we were going to award shows and she was just clutching her pearls and not what she wanted for, for Puerto Rico or to, you know, for Puerto Rico to be known for. Um, and, you know, her granddaughter has gone on record to say, you know, she actually loved the music. It was just that she wanted them to be, uh, you know, classier about it, essentially. They, they, she didn't want them to talk so, so nasty about certain things or to use these bad words in their music. Um, so you have that moment of um, these artists and producers and music video directors having to really struggle to find a way against the government while still either uh, moving in this globalizing path, like for example, a figure like Daddy Yankee did, or keep 
critiquing and keep the genre as something that um, is for the people, that is saying something that is socially meaningful, politically meaningful, or even a combination of both, because that was also very possible and found within the genre. So it's, you know, within that context that we see happening in Puerto Rico in terms of the policing and the whitening and the sanitizing, it's also going on in other places. Um, it's not just Puerto Rico itself, you know, you had similar histories of that in Cuba and the DR in Mexico, uh, within Latino communities in the United States itself, there was this rise of you know, panic from older generations about this music as it was coming on stronger and stronger uh, uh, through, you know, the radio and the internet and all of this. So there was this, there's this constant sort of um, demonization of the music that then um, demonizes the people that not only produce it and make it, but also even consume it, which is very unfortunate. I want to deviate just a little, based on what you were just saying. You mentioned at the very beginning that you grew up listening to reggaeton. What did your parents think about you listening and dancing to this rhythm? It's interesting because I feel like my mom has somewhat come around to it being a thing and it, you know, that I'm interested in, that I write about, you know, she'll sometimes hear some songs, she'll randomly sing Bad Bunny lyrics to me <laughs> when we converse. Um, and my dad was, he had a time where he was like, okay, I can get down with this. Like he used to like, get like pirated like CDs with like we sing it on their music and all of that and now he's like I just don't understand why you're into this like they've gotten so like they're just not saying anything and the rhythm is the same and and all of that so I don't know if it's a thing of him getting older or you know just like he got tired of it we're, we're all entitled to uh but yeah it was very interesting uh sort of their their sort of journeys with that as well and my grandparents never liked it uh my grandparents like they were very much about trio music and boleros and very just you know old school type of puerto rican whether it be music musica jibara or you know just more their speed you know uh, some salsa thrown in there just to spice things up. But yeah, I had one one of my grandfathers called it raqueton, you know, because it was just so noisy. It's just a racket. Um, and then my other grandfather hated it. And like my cousin had to hide all his tapes when, when he came over. <laughs> it's like, abuelo cannot know about this. So there was, there was this very interesting um, uh thing of wanting to protect us as youth within the family, but also, um, you know, these generational differences and the, the, the lyrical content being a little bit too mature for where we were in life. And, you know, I completely understand that, but it was really just unstoppable. It was everywhere, you know, at our parties in middle school and high school, 
we were listening to all kinds of music on, on the playlist, but most of it was reggaeton because that's what we liked. That's what made us groove, what made us dance. And so, yeah, it's it's been an interesting uh, journey with with the genre within my family. Hey, it's me, Mel, one of the hosts of the Mixtape Podcast. I wanted to take just a few seconds to remind you that in the Mixtape Podcast, we take an anti-racist approach to center the contribution of Black people and culture across the Latin American diaspora through dance and music. Follow us on Instagram at mixtape.podcast and click the link tree in our bio for more information. And remember, you can find all our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and through our website, tarheels.live slash mixtape podcast. All right, back to Beth. As we talk about the perceptions and opinions people have about reggaeton, it makes me think about rap in the 80s and the 90s. We know the kind of perceptions that people had about gangster rap, for example. Would you say that the elements that reggaeton took from rap might have elicited racist and discriminatory beliefs that existed about African Americans in the United States? And that this might be behind the distaste for the rhythm? Yeah, yeah. You have this thing where because there was such similarity between what was being produced with like a black urban American context, you know, in Puerto Rico, we got American news. We got, uh, you know, what was going on in New York and what was going on in Florida and Connecticut, even back in the eighties and nineties, not to the extent that we do now, but certainly we did get the news. And there was this always, um, you know, anti-blackness within that, uh, or, you know, uh, a lens of anti-blackness with which Puerto Ricans gazed upon hip hop. And because reggaeton has a lot of similarities to hip hop, both in sound, in the sartorial choices, in the gendering of people, in the, the class construction of the genre, that was certainly part of why it was so uh, you know, demonized. It wasn't just the fact that they were poor, they were young, and, you know, they were participating in things that weren't very moral sometimes. It was also the fact that a lot of them were Black. And we don't want to, in Puerto Rico, like in much of Latin America and other Caribbean places, it's very much about your Puerto Rican first. You know, the Tres Raices, we're all Taino and African and what and I'm like I don't know if I'm Taino I can't go back that that you know that far but there were there was this understanding and this construction that is very political very cultural uh, from the government happening that mirrored a lot of the nationalist projects in terms of identity that other countries in the region were undergoing as well and constructing that allowed these elites to not only make themselves against that image, but also to try to police and isolate themselves from that. And so that was part of this uh, 
this history of persecution. And, um, you know, even to this day, you have uh, artists that are not seen as, um, you know, politically uh, threatening within the genre, but then there are those that even if they don't sing about politics because they're politically involved, like a Bad Bunny figure, for example, they are seen as threatening by the state and by the elites. And, you know, they're trying to make it a, a moral grandstanding type of thing. Like, oh, his words are so filthy and he's such a misogynist and this, this and that. And it's like, okay, but there's also other stuff going on behind your distaste and behind your sometimes hatefulness towards the genre. I, you know, I can't even front that to this day in 2022, you have, whether it's artists, whether it's, you know, political elites or just people on Twitter that like, oh, I hate this. This is bad music. This is awful. This is so like classless and this is so this and this is so that. And there's always, whether subconsciously or unconsciously, a lot of anti-Black, classist, sexist sort of impetus behind those uh, critiques. So growing up in Latin America, I often found people that were like, reggaeton, bah, eso no es música, they would say. That's not music. And many of these people were sort of playing the role of gatekeepers of music, you know? Saying things like, real music is rock, or even salsa. What's been your experience with this? Yeah, and I mean, I, I grew up, again, my parents had, a, and within my, my family unit, there was all these types of genres being listened to and consumed in our households um, that I grew up loving and appreciating. And I always... It's always funny to me how, whether it be um, salsa or rock, because there was this huge like salsa versus rock uh, contention in the 80s, you know, when my dad was growing up and when he was a youth in college and all of that. And he was like, you know, like I like salsa, but like I'm really more into rock music. Um, and I think, you know, rock just like reggaeton and all these other uh, you know, genres can be used to critique and to release emotion and to really speak about an embodied experience and share that. That's what all music really has in common. But I think that when it comes to rock, whether it be in Spanish or even in English or other, uh, other languages, and I've thought about this a lot, um, I think it's because by the time that rock really became like the rock that we know it, um, in our countries, I think it was so distanced from blackness and its black origins that they felt okay to attach themselves to it. And then also there was this, um, this anger behind rock that you don't necessarily see within things like salsa and, uh, you know, other more fol folkloric uh, musics within our countries um, and reggaeton and hip hop and rap really gave a space for that type of expression too because there's some songs that are angry that are really critiquing and going against the government and then rock music 
you have that too. Like you have that sense of anger and wanting to express it and to critique and to talk about something that is bothering you as both an individual and as a larger society. I think there's more similarities there than maybe both camps could <laughs> are sort of recognizing at the moment uh, or, you know, historically, but I think that there's that, that reggaeton, even within its whitening, it's still so, uh, you can hear the blackness of it. Like with rock, it's been touched so much and transformed so much that it just feels like something new and something that is above race and beyond class. And, you know, I wouldn't say gender because that that's still a thing that within rock music and many uh, musical genres is still an issue but it wasn't a thing of, you know, only these type of people necessarily, um, you know, can, can go within and, and feel anger and express anger. There's a music for everybody to express anger. And there were sort of racial affinities within that because we do still see rock as a mostly white genre, even with its black origins. And we see still reggaeton as a black thing, even with, you know, a white, very white presenting person like Rosalia, who is from Spain, uh, and you know, other types of artists that have come in and and taken not necessarily the mantle, I wouldn't say, but they've taken a space within the genre and made it their own and have found success that way. Beth, you talk about the expansion of reggaeton in the US. Tell us a little about the expansion throughout Latin America, specifically as it relates to dembow in the Dominican Republic and reparto in Cuba. I think it's very interesting because when when we live in those of us that live in the Caribbean or even in Latin America, we don't get to be taught too much about each other. Like, you know, I grew up and was raised in Puerto Rico until I was 17, 18 and went off to college. And I hardly knew anything about the Dominican Republic in terms of its history, its politics, Cuba, like we knew about Fidel and we knew about the, the revolution, but it wasn't a thing of like, we didn't know all the elements of it. We didn't know about Jamaica and what happened there. We didn't know about Trinidad and Tobago. Like, even though we're this, you know, region of islands that are pretty close to each other, we weren't necessarily learning about each other. And I think that what I find very interesting and beautiful about music and reggaeton in particular is how it has traveled through the Caribbean and allowed us to know a bit more about each other, whether it be about our, you know, quotidian life in San Juan or in uh, Panama or in La Habana or, you know, wherever it may be, um, that has sort of been a, an entry point for a lot of us to get to know about each other. And so the fact that, you know, it, it has to be said that in terms of, you know, Dominicans, they've always been within the genre. Uh, a lot of our, uh, you know, major artists that 
are considered or read as Puerto Rican because they came up from the Puerto Rican scene are actually half Dominican or Dominican, but raised between New York and uh, Puerto Rico, for example. So here I'm thinking about Miguel and Arcangel and uh, the Looney Tunes, the, pro the producer duo, they are Dominican. They were living in the East Coast, heard these beats, was like, oh, like there's like reggae and Espanol and dance hall, and this is great and we're gonna get into it. And now, you know, we have this very pan-Caribbean sort of um, building of reggaeton and it was always uh, built within it. In terms of how it looks like today and the involvement of Dominicans today and Cubans today, you know, the, the spread of reggaeton to Cuba was slower because of the uh, the internet being so uh, censored in Cuba and all of that, but it still went to Cuba and it still arrived in Cuba, which is incredible. And they sort of took that same spirit that really uh, powered Puerto Rican youth in the 80s and 90s to speak out against governments and express live realities they took that and they ran with it and they went and talked about what it is to live in the 2010s in Cuba under Fidel and, and, and that uh, type of government and that type of limitation and the way that they wanna resist and the Cuba that they wanna see. And it was banned back in the early 2010s in Cuba because of this very similar to how it used to be in Puerto Rico in the 90s and 2000s. Um, and, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily banned, but it was very much like policed and censured and, you know, attacked in, in so many ways, as I discussed earlier. And then in, in the Dominican Republic, like they ran with the Dembo beat and just went to town on it and created something of their own, something that was very particular of, of theirs. And it's very interesting when you sit down and listen to contemporary or maybe like 2010s type reggaeton from all three islands, you know, we're the Hispanic Caribbean, but politically and historically, we're very different in many ways. We have similarities, but you know, we have Cuba who is still under this very particular form of government and we have the Dominican Republic that is independent, uh, but still has a lot of extraction and um, you know, uh, exploitation be part of its political and economic system. And then we have, of course, Puerto Rico, who is still technically a colony of, of the United States. So those very three particular government systems create particular daily lives for Cubans, Dominicans, and Puerto Ricans. And you can hear that in all three different types of reggaeton that have been created there. Thinking about the musical output coming out of the three islands, the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, and Cuba, it almost seems as though the music that comes out of Cuba is a bit more political, would you say? I mean, perhaps this is the case because it has to be more political given the environment there, maybe? I wouldn't necessarily say, you know, in Puerto Rico back in 2019, you know, 
the people marched and protested for like 15, 16 days in the summer um, and ousted our governor, first governor that the people have ousted in Puerto Rico through protests, which was historic. And the night that the governor uh, resigned, there had been this uh, planned, convened, yet somehow still very organic uh, perreo combativo in front of the oldest Catholic church in San Juan. And, you know, the people were using the music that did not necessarily have revolutionary lyrics or anything like that, but they were not only trying to discomfort the government as they went up to La Fortaleza, which is the governor's mansion, uh, they were also trying to discomfort coloniality and they were trying to discomfort the respectability that comes with these legacies of Catholicism and more and more so evangelicalism in Puerto Rico and, and their influence upon our government, how we are run as a society, the rights that we have and don't have. So a lot of the participants in that event were young, they were queer, they were black, they were disabled, sometimes all of that together. Uh, and they really made this very ephemeral event forever change that geography because, you know, now when you talk about uh, this, you know, this event of protest, this summer of protest within a lot of Puerto Rican scholars and people in general, they're like, oh, el perreo combativo, like that was fun, that was this, or people, because they don't like reggaeton, are like, that was awful, like so disrespectful to the Catholic church. And all. so you still have those reactions and it's still a, a point of conversation. And I don't wanna say that reggaeton was the thing that ousted the governor, but I think it certainly helped in many ways. <laughs> that was sort of like the, the death knell. I was like, okay, I have to get out of here. <laughs> no, I mean, that's a great point because, because yeah, in, in, in reality, of course, I mean, part of, you know, a musician has to be a musician before they're politicians, right? Nobody's gonna be like, trova cubana all the time. Yeah. So, so I think that's, that's that point about how music doesn't necessarily have to have on its lyrics, the politics to be a political instrument is what it's one of, and if anything, it's, part of why I've been kind of starting to love more and more reggaeton and reggaeton and the bow and apart and all these rhythms that are so brash mm -hmm. it's because of their brashness it's like yeah. yes we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make you uncomfortable we're gonna talk about you know all these ideas of morality all these bell truths that we have accepted we're gonna unroot them just because yeah. we want to and because we can and I think that's that's a, a liberating mm -hmm. um you know we don't have to be so constrained about our, our morals for no reason right and, yeah well, yeah. for our history of, of colonialism, I should say. <laughs> I mean, uh, that's not to say that even within reggaeton, it's, you know, because there's still a lot of misogyny within reggaeton. There's a lot of gatekeeping of queer artists and women who want to take up the mic and become stars within the genre. Um, and so I think in the time that we live in, it's easier for them to find an audience because there is an audience that is thirsty for that, to find the queer reggaeton artist to like, you know, stand down and support and love, uh, or the woman, uh, rapera, who's like, can really, you know, spit really sick flows and be like, I'm about something and I love that and I'm gonna support her. Um, there's a space for that and there's a hunger for that. And I think there's a lot of artists that are, uh, you know, 
meeting that requirement, but of course they're not household names like Bad Bunny and Daddy Yankee and Wilson Yandel and even on the Colombian side, Carol G and Maluma and J Balvin. So there's there's a lot of, of um, still, once again, gatekeeping in terms of not only race and who gets to represent this genre and perform it, but also which women get in there and what they do within the genre. Because if you notice, a lot of the like hot reggaetoneras, you know, and when I say hot, I mean like popular, they're singing, they're not rapping necessarily, if at all. So there's still a sort of gendered uh, look into who can rap within reggaeton, uh, who can represent within reggaeton when it comes to gender and race but also in terms of sexuality, because reggaeton, a lot of it has devolved into a very sexualized fantasy. They're selling us something. They're selling us a, a fantasy, a type of encounter sometimes within a song that we can gravitate towards. And it's not necessarily reality, but it's doing something. And it's doing something interesting, but yet we still have to look into how it can be very limiting to who is the one that can participate in this fantasy and who is the one that can consume this fantasy with me as a you know, cis straight man on the mic selling this to other people. Are you aware of artists who consciously elevate the Black roots and contributions of the rhythm and intentionally make space for Black people in a now white-dominated rhythm? I think, I mean, because you can do that as an artist in many different ways. You can do that with who produces your beats, with who you feature on your tracks. You can do that in who you feature in your music videos. If you're featuring more black people that are you know, still going to these clubs and enjoying this music, just because we might not necessarily be in the music videos because of colorism and racism, doesn't mean that we're not dancing to this music and that we're not enjoying it and still full participants of this genre. And you can also just give your flowers to artists and, and really uh, recognize the roots of this. You know, you can, really instruct yourself in the history of this genre that you love so much. Like every time I think about J Balvin and him thinking that he couldn't do reggaeton because oh my God. <laughs> there was nobody, like everybody was black and it wasn't until Daddy Yankee came along that he felt like he could was comfortable to be there. I'm like, uh, surprise, Daddy Yankee's dad is actually black and he comes from a very well-respected bomba family in Puerto Rico. So you know, just because he also had, you know, to, to machinate his look to be more white and palatable to these global audiences. Like Daddy Yankee has had the same haircut for 25 years. If he lets it grow out, you will know where he comes from. Like this was all very um, tactical when, when it comes to Daddy Yankee. So for someone to not know that, to not enmesh themselves or, or recognize such a thing within the genre, because it's always been very uh, multiracial in a way. Like, I'm not saying that these poor Puerto Ricans from the 80s and 90s were all Black. They weren't. 
there were mestizos and mulatos and whiter people too, because there's poor white people everywhere. Um, so they were all coming together and creating the scene from the same class standpoint and depending on who was doing it, the gender standpoint and the, the sort of desire for um, survival and success and sexuality and, and all of these things that drove these young guys back in the 80s and 90s um, to create the genre and really push it to be something bigger. Um, and so I think that back then it was very, in many ways, organic in how they all mixed and worked together and, um, you know, really respected each other. And then once you got into like selling beef to sell records and like creating these like rumors of discomfort and unhappiness and rifts and inviting other people from other countries and then signing major record deals and that sort of really um, helped the genre be so divorced from that ease and that like recognition of itself being black from the artists and from uh, the producers. Because to this day, it's like, I really wish I could talk to all of these people, mostly these men, because it's still a whole lot of men within reggaeton and tell them like, you're gatekeeping a lot of great talent just because of these imposed ideas of who is desirable in terms of race, who is desirable in terms of even now national origin as more people from other countries come into the genre, their sexuality, their gender, like there's so much that is being um, elided and basically driven away from this mainstream scene because of this. And I think that that's why you know, they're so set in their ways now that it's so hard to find that recognition and that um, sort of just desire to be like, hey, yeah, we have black roots and we're gonna respect black artists and we're gonna bring them back on the map. Like it's happening to a certain extent, but not to the point where I'm like, I, I feel comfortable with that. I feel like I felt back in like 2001 or 2002 being a kid watching music videos where I could see people of all colors, including my own and darker, being out there and being fabulous and doing all of these things and showing their talent um, that is being made really hard by these um, metrics of desirability and what can be sold and who will be more successful the easiest because it's become so capital driven and capitalistic. Not that it wasn't before because these guys were hustling and selling their tapes out of their cars and all of that back in the 80s and 90s, but it's become so much larger than what they were prepared for and what they envisioned that now this is what we have, like a, a whitening and a, a sort of hard stance against, you know, it's like, hey, let's bring it back. Like, just because you go and film your music video in Jamaica, that doesn't tell me that you respect <laughs> the black roots of this genre. You're just using Jamaica as a backdrop. Um, so there's, there's still a lot of work to do within that and that particular issue within the genre. <laughs> Beth, 
Thank you so much for taking time to meet with us and share your personal and professional knowledge and enthusiasm about this rhythm. We enjoyed a lot hearing from you. If you want to hear more from Beth, check out our latest Where You Listening episode, where Beth works with me to contextualize Tego Calderon's impactful song, Loisa. I would also like to extend a thank you to Beth, who is absolutely amazing to learn from. Stick around, because this is not the last time you'll be hearing from her on our platform. Thank you for listening. This is Mixtape. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook where you can find us at mixtape.podcast and also on Twitter and YouTube, which you can find on our website, tarheels.live slash mixtapepodcast. Make sure you click the subscribe button and turn on notifications. Do you have any suggestions, questions, or comments? Email us at themixtapepodcast at gmail.com. Remember that you can also send us audio clips with your reflections for future episodes. Thanks for listening. This is Mixtape.